A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode about the Ma'ar V'Shemesh is dedicated by Alex and Devorah Berger in honor of their children, Moshe and Carly, Ellie and Mickey, who are Eniklach of this holy tzaddik, and it should be a schus for the entire family. So before we get to the very fascinating story of the Marv Shemesh, of Kleinemus Kalman Halevi Epstein, who was one of the founders of, or one of the early leaders, I'll say, rather, uh, of the Hasidic movement in Poland and Galicia in the late 1700s. So before we get to that, um, so we just had recently had an episode on the story of the Jews of Venice, and I got some nice amount of feedback from that episode, including a couple of corrections, Um, and I want to just make note of that, and I'll read it from the listeners' letters themselves. One of them was as follows, I must make one correction. You stated that Venice was one of the only cities that had a Jewish community comprised of a number of other Jewish communities. However, the biggest example of this for centuries was Saloniki in Greece, which had tens of Jewish communities stemming from all different regions. Many of them might have been under the umbrella name as Sephardic. But as a matter of fact, they came from all types of different backgrounds and communities and places of origin, with different customs and uh, psakim. In Halacha, this city had tens of thousands of Jews. While I don't know if the population, Jewish population of Venice, ever made it to six thousand, when the population is that small to begin with, then it is quite as easy to consolidate all the Sephardic uh, communities into one kahila. But when we're talking about a place of tens of thousands of Jews, it was therefore much easier for each kahila to remain distinct. Which is a very interesting point. In general, these uh, early places where, which were meeting points of, uh, of of Ashkenazi Jews and Sephardic Jews before the modern era, because today we take it for granted, uh, is very interesting. I think I pointed out a few other cities in that episode where um, where we can elaborate on perhaps one day. Here's another one. What I recall, Daniel Bomberg was from Antwerp, not from Amsterdam. As well, you didn't explain why he came from Antwerp to Venice. This is probably an episode on its own, because in Venice they permitted, they permitted the printing of Jewish books. 
So that's definitely a good correction. So I think I may have mistakenly said that Daniel Bomberg was from Amsterdam. He was, of course, from Antwerp. But when you're from Israel or from New York, so Antwerp, Amsterdam, it all seems the same anyway. I'm just kidding. But uh, of course, definitely it's worth me correcting that he was from Antwerp. Um, and here's another interesting uh, uh, correction. Here it goes. LaGuardia was, was Jewish. He didn't just have Jewish ancestry. I'm assuming you knew that. Just an interesting choice of term. Also regarding Shylock, Rib Shlomo Yosef Zevin wrote a long discussion titled Mishpat Shylock Lafi HaHalacha, where he dissects the court proceedings according to Halacha. So, first of all, regarding that last point, that's fascinating. I think it says a lot about who the type of person Rav Zevin was, that he wrote a uh, halachic discussion about Shylock in halacha. But regarding his first correction, so of course, halachically, LaGuardia may have been Jewish since his mother was Jewish um, or had Jewish origin. Um, so it wasn't technically, it was not just Jewish ancestry. I'm... I'm never sure how to phrase these type of things about someone who com- absolutely did not consider himself Jewish. And LaGuardia is just one example. Um, he he considered himself Italian and Christian and whatever. Um, he did know Yiddish, so another famous story. But LaGuardia is an interesting story anyway. Um, how do you refer to someone like that? You call him Jewish because according to the Shulchan Aruch he is, or you have you we, we make up some new term. Um, that he, uh, because he he didn't consider himself by any by any uh, account uh, Jewish. So I use the neutral term Jewish ancestry. I hope everyone's okay with that. Let's move on to the Ma'ar V'Shemesh. Fascinating story. Kleinim is common Alevi Epstein, who is known to posterity by his Sefer Ma'ar V'Shemesh. We always go to his gravesite in the Krakow New Jewish Cemetery. In Krakow, there are three Jewish cemeteries. There's the old one next to the Ramah Shul, which is an ancient Jewish cemetery. The Ramah, the Bach, the Taisis Yantif, many other great tzaddikim are buried there, Megal Amukis and others. And then there's right outside Kajimish, right outside the Jewish quarter, there's the new Jewish cemetery where the Ma'ar Vashemesh is and his son is buried there and the Vialapolarov, Rav Shlomazam Frankel is buried next to the Ma'ar V'Shemesh, and right further down in that same cemetery is Rav Shimon Seifer, the uh, the son of the Chassam Seifer, who is the uh, Rav in Krakow, and a few of his grandchildren, the Kornitzers, who were later rabbis in Krakow. There's all kinds of, uh, that. that's the, you know, Moritz Gottlieb, the famous uh, Jewish, mid, mid-19th century Jewish uh, painter, uh, a fa- fantastic artist, very classic uh, paintings, He's buried there, others. And then right before, several years, 1930s, several years before the 1920s, maybe, before the war, on the outskirts of the city, um, they opened a third new Jewish cemetery, which was completely destroyed, and uh, and uh, the Nazis built the plush of a concentration camp on the ruins of that cemetery. The only, now there's a, mem- a memorial to Plashev on those grounds, there's only one grave that's been restored in that new cemetery, and that's Sarah Shanira. But here we're talking about the the second cemetery, which is referred to as the new cemetery, where the Ma'ar V'Shemesh is buried. Um, and he is the is one of the primary students of the Rebbe of Ma'alach, the Noyem Elimelech of Lezhensk. 
and he's one of the greatest leaders of the Hasidic movement in Poland in its early stages in Galicia. The Marvish Shemesh left a profound impact on the successive generations of the Hasidic movement in Galicia, in Poland, and beyond. Um, Reb Shloyme Halberstam of Babov, the first Babov Rebbe, not his uh, more famous namesake who was the Babov Rebbe in the United States after the war, but rather his grandfather, the the uh, the first Reb Shloyme of Babov, who was the grandson of the Devre Chaim, the son of Reb Meir Nassen, Halberstam, the father, of course, of the Kedusha Sin of Babov. So they're talking about the first Babov Rebbe, he was the first one to move to Babov, um, he is uh, so he said that the Ma'ar Shemesh, the Sefer, the, the book that he authored, that the Reklanim is Kalman Epstein authored, is so fundamental a work in Hasidic thought that uh, the Baba Rebbe referred to it as the Shulchan Arach of Hasidus, as if it's the basic text uh, of, of Hasidic thought. So, it, what I like about it in, in Krakow, in our, in our groups, we go from the Ramah. Uh, his cover in the old Jewish cemetery in Kajimish, and we walk from there, it's just a five minute walk to the Ma'ar V'Shemesh in the new cemetery and so we go from the Halacha Shulchan Aruch to the Shulchan Aruch of Hasidus in the same city just a few minutes away separated by, you know, a few centuries in time but it has a very nice bookend effect from one Shulchan Aruch to the other it was a very, very popular book and went through several printings throughout the 19th century some printings of the Marva Shemesh, it was actually published as a commentary on the Chumash, together with the Chumash text. In other words, they printed a Chamisha Chumshe Taira with a Marva Shemesh as a commentary, which is quite uncommon for a Hasidic commentary, and therefore throughout Galicia and even beyond, it was very well read and studied for its time. Um, ironically, he was not known as the Marva Shemesh uh, during his lifetime. It was only published many years after his passing. Um, he actually wrote most of it himself, and as notes, um, Sefer Dvarim, he supervised the writing, but he did not write it himself. But it was left in manuscript form when he passed away in 1823, prior to its publishing. The Mar Shemesh was actually published by his son, Rab Aaron Epstein, in 1842, nearly two decades later. And the title was chosen by one of the greatest Hasidic rabbinic leaders of his day, Rabbi Yileib Lifshitz, the Arya Devei Loi, the son of Elias Machmeisha. So, and he wrote one of the approbations to the work. So he chose the name Ar Vishemesh. And, um, and so in his own lifetime, uh, he was never known by that title, of course. That's how we know him, refer to him today. But in his own lifetime, he was known as Reb Kleinemis Kalman, Reb Kalman, or Reb Kalmish, Reb Kalmishol, one of those, um, uh, you know, one, some derivative of that name. So the backdrop of the whole story of the Omar Vishemesh is actually a much broader and fascinating story. It's something, a topic that I've mentioned several times and we don't quite understand until today, and that is a very basic question. How and when did the Hasidic movement spread to where it did? And also, I guess, underlying that is a why. Why did it spread there and why did it spread there? Did not spread other places, and why at this time? And and uh, the whole process is something we don't quite have a full picture of until this very day. So, into that big question, and we have partial answers in some districts, in some areas, in some places. We don't have a full answer. So, the Marvishamish is really filling in part of the story because he's quite unique in this regard because it provides insight 
into the spread, or rather the attempted spread, into one of the oldest and most established large and somewhat urban centers of Polish Jewry, Krakow. Uh, Krakow is one of the oldest uh, Jewish settlements in Poland. It's a fortress of old Polish Ashkenaz. It's not some little shtetl. It has its old, centuries-old shuls. The aristocracy in its history of the Ramo, the Bach, the Taisis Yantif, many other famous rabbis hovering over its hallowed customs and culture. This is the center of the old Polish uh, Ashkenazi Jewry. Um, so how does Hasidus, how does the Hasidic movement fare in that environment? Uh, that's a great question. So it's a much better story um, in a way, than the Mar Shemesh's own teacher, the Noam Elimelech, for instance, who established himself in a small little shtetl like Lezhensk, where it's much easier, where it's not as old of a community, it's a much smaller community, and if there's a very charismatic leader who settles down there and attracts a following, then that's very easy for it to spread in such a place. So that's that's where the, 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 the paradigm of the Noam Elimelech is, is for the many, many if not most, or almost all of the early Hasidic tzaddikim, uh, as opposed to this story of the Mar Shemesh, where his attempts at settling down in a place like Krakow. If anything, the Mar Shemesh can be compared to another mentor of his um, after the, the passing of the Naimele Malach, and that's, of course, the Chayza of Lublin, Rabbi Yaakov Yitzchak Harovitz, who was known as the Chayza of Lublin, and he first settles in Lansut, which is, you know, a town. I wouldn't call it a small shtetl, but it's not a large, major urban center. And then later on moves from Lansut to Lublin, which Lublin, one can argue, has a similar profile to Krakow. It's a large city. It's a very ancient Jewish community, had very prestigious history, very rigid customs culture in its synagogues. Um, and, and, and therefore the Chayza may have faced similar challenges. Well, the whole, the whole saga of the Chayza himself and bringing Hasidus to a place like Lublin wasn't really understood either for a long time. Lately, there's been a very, very impressive attempt and a pretty successful attempt, I'd even say. Um, absolutely fantastic book by Dr. Uriel Gelman. Um, it's in Hebrew, I don't think there's any English translation, Hashvilim Hayotzim Mi Lublin, which is about the Chayza and his story in Lublin, and also touches on Pshischa um, in the second half of the book, but that explains the whole Lublin story and the Chayza. So in, in a similar type of a context, we have the Marva Shemesh, which to the best of my knowledge has not been written about that much and has not been explained, and I think it's it's an open game, so it should be researched more, and it's a really an interesting story to tell. So let's start from the beginning and give a little bit of a background as to who the Mar Shemesh was and how he attempted to bring the Hasidic movement to Krakow. So he's born into a very poor family. His father was a bagel baker and, and seller. He, 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 was a, you know, he sold bagels for a living. And the Mar Shemesh is born in 1751 in the little uh, Polish... Uh, it's the old Polish kingdom, of course, before the partitions, and the Marv Shemesh's life spans the partitions till after the Congress of Vienna. He passes away in 1823, um, so he go- lives through the entire that political upheaval and changing of borders, and he actually lives uh, in, in both places, and both sides of the border. Um, he's born in the city of Novi Korczyn, 
that's the Polish name. Of course, the Jews use the German name, as was their custom, which is Neustadt, which means new city. It's similar. The Polish name Novi is, of course, new as well. Um, so this is a little shtetl north of Tarnow. Um, so it's northeast of Krakow, not that far away, and northwest of, of Raisha. Uh, Zhezhev, which is which is near Lezhensk. So you get the, the whole picture of his life story, of where he went and traveled, all from in close proximity relatively to where he was born. In theory, this Neistat, this Novi Karchin, is, is in the general area of what's generally referred to as Galicia, but after 1815, in other words, after the Congress of Vienna, <coughs> excuse me, it was, it, it was relegated to Russian-controlled Congress Poland, so it was not in the Habsburg-Austria-Hungarian Empire after 1815. It was in Congress Poland, which was under nominal Russian control. So the purpose of our story here today, instead of boring you with map details, the Marvishemish lived in Neistat for a large portion of his life, whenever he wasn't living in Krakow. Krakow and Neistat were the two main cities that he resided in. Um, but until 1815, this Neistat place was under Austrian rule. It was under the Habsburgs, so it was technically Galicia. It was only the last years of his residing there did it revert back to Congress Poland, because in 1820, a couple of years later, he returned to Krakow and remained there until his passing in 1823. So he descended, um, interestingly enough, from he had Sephardic Jewish lineage. So he must have been from one of those families that after the Spanish expulsion ended up in Germany, and then from Ashkenaz came to Poland, which he was not the only one, there were several. Now think about his name. It's Kleinimus Kalman Halevi Epstein. Um, and he descends from his, his, his lineage, he was able to trace it back, all the way, centuries back, to Rabbeinu Zrachia Halevi, the Baal Hamar, and other, other greats of, of Spain, Provence, that area. So it's, it's very similar for those who are familiar with the introduction to the Makar Baruch of Rav Baruch HaLevi Epstein, the Torah Tamima, and, and of course he's the son of Rechiel Michal HaLevi Epstein, the Aruch HaShulchan. So he writes there that they really descend from the Sephardic Benevishti family, and they, after the Spanish expulsion, the Alhambra decree in 1492, the Torah Tamima writes that they ended up in the German uh, town or city of Epstein, Epstein, and they took on the name of that town, and they eventually ended up in Lithuania. Um, so, Rav Baruch Epstein, the Torah Tamima, makes this bold assertion that anyone who has the, who's Halevi Epstein, anyone who's a, from a Levi family, and their name is Epstein, is really from this Sephardic family, and they descend from the Baal Hamar which is very interesting, because it seems that he's a distant cousin of the Mar Shemesh as well, who has the same exact lineage. So here we have a fascinating situation. We have a Galicia Hasidic Tzadik, a great Rebbe who spreads Hasidus in Galicia. We have a Valazhin Litvak uh, family of the Torah Tamima and the Aruch HaShulchan. And we have a medieval Sephardic family of the Balamar, Rabbi Nizrachi Alevi, and they're all the same family. So when we tend to emphasize our differences and, and, and how different our origins are and our customs are and our cultures are, and we come from different areas in Europe, so we must be very, very different, 
Unfo- you know, unfortunately or fortunately, it depends how you look at it, we're not as different as we think we are. And den- generally, we derive from very, very similar sources. So that's a very interesting, and it's a beautiful story of Jewish unity for those who like to save these type of stories for inspirational uh, uh, videos on social media and, and whatnot. So in any event, so the... Um, the the uh, the uh, Marva Shemesh, he's about five years old. His parents moved to Krakow. They thought it would be easier to make a living there as a bagel baker. And they had ten children, a large family. And at the time, he's known as a Kalmishal. He didn't attend Cheder because his parents simply could not even afford it. So instead, he helped his parents make a living. He would take a tray of bagels every day and sell them in the streets of Kazimierz, in the Jewish quarter of Krakow. Very often he'd stand in the courtyard of the Bach Shul in Krakow, which was a busy place with a lot of people coming and going and studying. And he would stand there with his tray of bagels, barefoot. His parents could not even afford to buy him a pair of shoes. So he'd walk the cobblestone streets barefoot. This little child, seven, eight, nine years old, selling bagels. Unbelievable. And from then on, oh, and one day it, it was raining pouring rain, he's getting soaked, and his bagels are getting soaked, and he's standing in the courtyard of the Bach's uh, shul, so he goes inside, and, um, and, and he sees the people studying Torah, and he's entranced. Uh, uh, he sees among the, all the assembled, he's like, uh, you know, he gets very moved. So from then on, he decided that he's going to do everything he can to sell his tray of bagels as quickly as he can every morning, and then for the rest of the day, he's going to hang around the Bach's shul to absorb the sounds of Torah. And he sometimes would stand barefoot on a bench to see and hear a Torah class being delivered by one of the local rabbis or scholars. Uh, so there was a fellow named Mordechai Gutgold who took note of him and had a take, took to this young child and decided to become his patron. He buy, bought him new clothes, he hired teachers for him, he helped the family out, and this young Kalmashal began to excel in his studies, and he becomes this budding young Talmud Chacham. So when he was a young teenager, as was the custom at the time, this Reb Mordechai Gutgold, who was quite wealthy, one of the more uh, you know, leading families of Krakow, decides to marry him off to his daughter, Milka Radl. So now he becomes a son-in-law of this uh, fellow. So that's a, a great story of bagels. So in honor of the general environment of schoolers out there, and because I want to you know, make the Jewish history sound bites more famous. So I decided, with the help of the listeners, that what we're going to do right now is launch a new skula, one that I made up, and I'm making up actually right now, that we have to do something. There's a lot of potential here. The Marva Shemesh was huge, and there's nothing really associated with him yet. We need to promote him. That's first of all. Second of all, bagels. I mean, any it's associated with bagels. This is a lot of potential. So I'm toying with a few ideas, and I'm Opening the floor to the listeners for ideas, please be in touch with me if you think of ideas, what we could do with bagels and the Marva Shemesh. Maybe to visit Krakow, you know, using a good tour guide, of course, like myself, with a group, and we'll eat bagels before we go to Davin at the Marva Shemesh's cover, and that would be a skula for something. Or perhaps people should, you know, Sunday morning for breakfast, have a bagel while they study that week's Parsha, that week's Torah portion, from the Ma'ar Shemesh, and that would also be a zgula for something like becoming a better Jew, or 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 maybe to make money. I don't know. That might be more popular. I'm not sure what how to where to take this, but there's a lot of potential. Something with bagels and the Ma'ar Shemesh. So, the 
um, he eventually gets exposed to the Hasidic movement. Until this point, he is not uh, Hasidic. He, um, he, you know, it's a relatively new movement at the time. Talking about the 1760s, it's just beginning to spread. And there's different versions how he got exposed to it. Either the Noim Elimelech himself visited Krakow and, and with Davind in one of the shuls, and the young uh, um, Reb Kalman uh, saw him and was inspired, or some other version. There's, there's several different legends going around how he was exposed to it, but he decided he's going to Lezhensk. And there was opposition to it, in the, both in the town and his community and his family, his father-in-law, who supported him, of course, in his studies, did not want him to go. Um, and uh, he was insistent. He decided he's going. His wife supported him. His wife even sold some of her jewelry uh, to be able to fund his journey to Lezhensk. So his wife, Milka Radl, had a big portion of his uh, being successful in, in his, his, his endeavor. Uh, so he goes to Lezhensk. He also went, didn't go just to the Rebbe of Meilach. He went to the Chayz of Lublin. He went to Rebichel of Zlachev, Zlachev of Magen, and he, other tzaddikim as well. He had a relationship, his closest relationship was with the Rebbe of Meilach. And he remains there for quite a bit of time. And there's many, many stories that take place while he's in Lezhensk. At first, the Rebbe of Meilach didn't want to take him in and eventually insisted. And he became one of his closest students. And in the beginning, when he didn't want to accept him, so the Marvashemish would uh, agree to just be someone who who services the the shul, the base medrash, the shtibel of of the Rebbe Meilch, and he would he would cut the wood, chop the wood for the oven, and prepare to heat the oven during the winter. That's what he was willing to do that just to be able to hang around uh, the Rebbe until finally the Rebbe Meilch, Rebbe Meilch. Uh, uh, Received him and drew him close, and and uh, and, and they enjoyed a very very close relationship. Um, when he returns to Krakow, so his father-in-law doesn't even want to talk to him and until they reconcile. It's a whole process. There was a lot of op- opposition from with both within his family um, and from the general community, who was not happy that their young uh, superstar had joined in this new movement. Um, what he did, I don't know if this was in spite or or actually prove that he that he was that he was doing well in Lezhensk. What he emphasized is that he he, he what he gained in Lezhensk was both in his service of God and his davening, and his he also emphasized his renewal of his Torah study. He said, "All my old chidushim are not good, and now I have a new way of studying that I learned in Lezhensk from the Rebbe of Meilach and from the atmosphere and the environment there." And he's he's much better at his learning Torah, his study of Torah, uh, as a result of his connection to the Hasidic movement and the Rebbe of Meilach. I'm not sure how the Misnagdim will appreciate this part of the story, but that's what the Marv Shemesh himself said. And uh, we have to take it at face value. He said that uh, that his study of Torah and his Chidushim uh, were very much improved uh, as a result of his connection to the Hasidic movement. So that's a, you know, an interesting aspect of the story. Now, there's another thing that's a part of the folklore, legend from his time in Lezhensk, that he was bringing tea to the Rebbe of Meilach, and when he comes into the room, he sees this vision of a holy person sitting, standing there, or sitting there with the Rebbe of Meilach, and he dropped the tea, and the Rebbe said, why'd you drop the tea? And he said, I was very shaken by the presence of this holy person, and the Rebbe of Meilach tells him that was Avraham Avinu. There are different versions of this story, and Either the story is true or not, I have no idea. I could not find a good source for the story, and this is what we would call a classic Hasidic story. Um, 
And, and I don't know if it's true. And to me, in a way, it's irrelevant. And I want to explain why and what I mean. Um, there is a importance of folklore in forming collective group identity, in forming the value systems of a certain group, of a, a, a cultural identity, of the heroes of that group. What this story tells us, whether it's true or not, because it was related by generations of Hasidim, it tells us much more about the group of followers and how they saw their leaders than the story itself. That's what's important. It tells us how Hasidim in Galicia and how the Hasidic movement in Galicia viewed people like the Naim Elimelech and the Ma'ar Shemesh. That's why these stories are important. Um, so the Ma'ar Shemesh would later elevate the Naim Elimelech almost to the level of the Baal Shem Tov himself, he would say these two great lights, the Baal Shem Tov and the Naim Elimelech, he would put them in one breath. And therefore the Rebbe of Melech is together with the Baal Shem Tov considered the ones most responsible for the great light that the Hasidic movement brought and the effect which it had. He attempts at establishing a Hasidic presence in Krakow. He's not able to have his own base measure. He just can't establish his own shtibel. So what he does is he davens at the shul of the Megala Amukas. So he's he's just, you know, another person davening there. And he's attempting to daven in a Hasidic fashion and style. So he doesn't, you know, this this has a a adverse effect on him able to really establish himself there is because he, he doesn't even have his own shul. He struggles to have a following. He has a small chabura, a small group of people who are close followers. There is opposition from the establishment, from the rabbinical establishment, from the leaders, the kahal. Um, he reaches kind of a dead end. There's very staunch opposition from the rabbi of Krakow at the time, Rabbi Yitzchak Landau. And in 1786, he signs a cherem against the authors and signs a cherem against Hasidim in Krakow in 1786. So this becomes one of those cities. Again, 1780s is during 1770s and 80s and 90s is during the time of the peak of the active uh, 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 opposition to the Hasidic movement, which I've discussed in other episodes. And Krakow was one of those cities that actually signed a a ban. Um, so. So it's a very hostile environment for him to to be in. He was even once beaten while praying in a Hasidic fashion as an attempt to make him stop, which it did not have an effect. He was even informed upon to the government. And he was arrested due to these informers, and they framed uh, um, a crime. He's brought to jail in Tarnov. He was able to finally get out. Um, his followers rallied on his behalf. And he therefore leaves Krakow. He's, it's unable to, to succeed in Krakow, and he moves back home to his hometown of Neistat. And he remained there for most of the rest of his life. He returned periodically to Krakow for visits. And then when he was sick in 1820, he went to Krakow for treatment, and he remained there until his passing a couple of years later. Um, and then he's buried there, of course. So there's this these challenges of establishing a Hasidic presence in a big city like Krakow. It's quite, quite a unique situation. He either davened in the Megala Amukas Shul, sometimes he davened in his home, and he made his own little apartment in the Jewish quarter, um, a, a first Hasidic shtibel of sorts. And he never was able to garner a mass following at this stage, relative to some of his other friends from Lezhensk, who settled in more uh, receptive environments and little shtetls. Even later in life, in Neistat, 
where he was, did have a larger following, but by nature, he was, a bit, he was very modest by nature, he considered himself a chassid his entire life, so he would continually travel to other tzaddikim of his day, he didn't see himself as just a rebbe and a leader of others, um, but if we focus on his time period in Krakow, he did not quite succeed there, and it was only later that his son, Reb Aaron, um, that he that he was able to establish a permanent Hasidic presence, and the Hasidic movement was able to uh, 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 succeed in Krakow. The Marva Shemesh had to leave. He did not have a real following there. So if we would look with a historical perspective at his attempt, would we term it a success or a failure, or neither? And it's a very interesting story, because... On one hand, the historical record is not ashamed to admit that someone of the stature of the Mar Shemesh did not succeed in generating a revolution in Krakow with thousands of followers there, right? We would want to say a story of how he came into town and everyone was just enamored by his presence and the whole establishment said, hey, he he's someone we should follow and, and within a couple of years he had conquered the city. That's not what happened. Um, but on the other hand, it's an important story because it gives us an understanding about how the movement spread and how it didn't. And in places where there was much more of an established communal custom and a strong kahal, there was generally stiffer opposition, and that would uh, have a tendency to slow it down. It only slowed it down for one generation. The Marva Shemesh's son, Rabaran, was successful in establishing a presence there, and within two or three generations, the majority of religious Jews in Krakow were Hasidic, perhaps all of them, because within a few generations, most Jews in Krakow were not religious altogether, but whoever was religious was Hasidic. Um, the irony is that the Marva Shemesh had an impact with many followers far away from Krakow, people who had come to him from far away, who came to him from near and far to get his blessing, to be by him, uh, to stay by him, to to get you know to be taught by him, especially during his later years back in Neistat, and the Torah that he taught them formed the basis of the book the Mar of Shemesh, which when it was finally published had a decisive impact on future generations of the Hasidic movement, arguably much more of an historical influence than many of his peers, many of his colleagues who had more followers than him perhaps in their own lifetime, but his book the Mar of Shemesh had a much more decisive impact. In the long run, his historical impact may be much greater, despite the fact that he had to leave Krakow. Um, when he was in Krakow, he went, he was in the, when he would, when he would daven at the Ramashul, in, in, so then he said, the Ramah is the Marad Asra of the Shul. He's the rabbi of the Shul. Even though the Ramah had passed away 250 years before, but he said, the presence of the Ramah is still hovering over the shul. We can't change any customs in the Ramah shul. He would daven Ashkenaz in the Ramah shul. I always tell that to the groups, especially if they're a Haimish or a Hasidic group. If we're visiting the Ramah shul and you're planning to daven, you got to follow the the uh, the uh, Mar V'Shemesh and daven Ashkenaz in the shul because the Ramah is still here. The presence of the Ramah is still felt. But sometimes the uh, Mar V'Shemesh would go outside into the corridor and he would... He, there he would pray in the Hasidic fashion. He said, in the corridor, it's not the Ramashul. We can go, we can do there. We can be uh, more lenient in our davening there. The Mar Shemesh is close with all, and all of the great tzaddikim of Poland in his time. The Rebbe Ramaylach, his brother, the Rebbe Reb Zisha, the Zlachev Magad Ramichel, the Chayzev Lublin, or Mendel of Rimenev, his yard site was just the other day. The Kajnitzer Magad, Reb Hirsch Mishar of Rimenev, Reb Aftali of Rapshitz, or Mayor of Apta, the Arla Shemayim, 
Rabbi Socher Berdes Habakadish of Radishes, and many, many others. And he had, of course, a great influence on the next generation of uh, Polish Hasidic leaders, including the Divrei Chaim of Tzans, who held him in very high esteem. In fact, many of the leading non-Hasidic Rebbes of his day also spoke very highly of him as well, because the Mar Shemesh was renowned as a Talmud Chacham in the classical sense as well, which is important to realize. And eventually that becomes quite common in Galicia, in the tradition of the Rupshitz and Sons dynasties, where uh, generally they were rabbis of communities and also Hasidic Rebbes at the same time. Um, the the um, the Marva Shemesh in his later years was part of a lot of the other great stories of Polish Hasidus of its time of of the rising influence of Pshischa and what that meant for the Polish Hasidic movement and the opposition Pshischa faced from the more mainstream rebbe's like the Marva Shemesh. He was also at the center of the attempts of Remendela Rimenov and the Chais of Lublin to and other Polish tzaddikim to hasten the arrival of Mashiach in the year 1815. So he was he was very much at the center of a lot of what was going on in the Polish Hasidic uh, movement uh, in general. The Marv Shemesh, is, a large chunk of his book, of the Marv Shemesh itself, discusses the role of, of the Tzaddik, and it's the same school of thought as his great teachers, the Naim Elimelech and the Chayza, and it kind of expands on that idea. And he describes in a very powerful metaphor that the role of the tzaddik is that of a shamish of a shul, the custodian of a shul, almost even the janitor of the shul. He said the job of the the custodian is to keep the shul clean, to do the maintenance, to sweep, to clean all the dirt out of the shul. So in the process, he gets dirty himself, and he gets filthy, his pants, his hands, everything gets dirty. So the shamish gets dirty, but the shul is sparkling clean. And that is... The Marv Shemesh's uh, parable, the metaphor of the responsibility of the tzaddik, which I find very powerful, very compelling. I always relate it to the groups, um, how the tzaddik has to go down and clean the shul, clean the, the Jewish people and elevate them, lift them up. And even if he gets dirty, but his job is to go down and, and clean it up. Um, he passes away in 1823 in Krakow. Um, and he, uh, there's no oil because, of course, in Krakow, it goes according to the old custom where there's no oil built over the graves of people in the Krakow cemeteries. So the Marva Shemesh is no exception. So he's one of the greatest Rebbes, to the best of my knowledge, that has no oil on his uh, cover. Um, he, uh, he had a, a, um, a great family, uh, descendants, two sons and two daughters. His son, Reb Aaron, stayed in Krakow, succeeded him there opened the first successful Kloys, uh, Hasidic Kloys in Krakow, which became the nucleus of the Hasidic community and became known until the Holocaust as Reb Aaron's Kloys. Eventually the opposition died down and uh, Reb Aaron uh, Epstein became more accepted and even a community leader. His uh, signature appears on the uh, uh, Ksav Rabbanus, the rabbinical uh, hiring of Reb Shimon Seifer as the rabbi of Krakow in the mid-19th century. He's buried next to his father. The Devei Chaim of Tzans later said that Krakow Hasidus must follow the customs of the Ma'ar Shemesh and his son Rabarn, since they were the ones who brought the movement there. Um, and uh, his other son was Rabbi Yosef Baruch Epstein, who became known as the Guter Yid of Neistat. He remained in Neistat, and he was a very beloved person, very warm, very caring for his followers, and he became known with that appellation, the Guter Yid. In fact, um, another famous Kleinemis Kalman is the Piazetzner Rebbe, of Kleinemis 
Kalman Shapiro, the Piyatzetz Nareba, and he, of course, is a direct descendant through his mother's side uh, from the Mar Shemesh, and therefore he's his namesake as well. So he's a famous, uh, more contemporary figure who carries the name of the Mar Shemesh. So this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoy.